Warning, this is not your father's history. This is not the history your coach taught you in high school. And you won't find it on the History Channel either. No, you see, this is the history your mother warned you about. This is History Against the Grain. Your hosts, Chris Paget and Josh Weiner. We don't believe you, because we the people. Episode 14, A World Cut in Two. Chris, we got a big problem here right now. There's just nothing to talk about. We got this podcast, but there's nothing going on for us to discuss, right? It's a, it's, you know, it's, it's a high standard um, to match when, you know, every day there's something more or less changing the historical moment. You know, right, right outside your window, basically. So when, you know, when you get to Tuesday, say, or Wednesday, and that hasn't happened yet by two o'clock, you're wondering what's going on, you know. Yeah, right. when's it going to hit? You know, we had all these plans for these, these segments we were going to do, you know, back in the past, like three weeks ago. And now it's, we just, we don't have time for that kind of stuff anymore. <laughs> we gotta, we got to get to the real stuff right away. There's no time for fun and games this week. We're running on some rarefied jet fuel. You know, we traded in our, our standard uh, premium, and, and we're running on some rarefied fuel now. And uh, I don't know. You know, it reminds me, and you and I were talking about this. Uh, you get these revolutionary moments in the modern age, right, where these unexpected and startling things happen, seemingly unscripted. And then, you know, people pause to catch their breath, and that's when all these, you know, revolutionaries go to work with quill and, and paper, you know, um, they, uh, you know, you think of Thomas Paine in the American Revolution or, or Lenin, you know, before the, the Russian Revolution or Karl Marx in 1848 or, you know, even our, our guy Fanon, who we're going to be talking about during the Algerian uh, Revolution, that they, that's when they go to work. You know, what, is, what has just happened and what does this mean? And uh, everyone else is, is trying to, to catch their breath, but they're trying to make sense of it. And I think that's happening now, Josh. I think it's just happening in the digital age, which means that instead of the few, you know, uh, fully committed, true believer, revolutionary types, you have this multitude of voices and it's playing out digitally. Maybe, I don't know, what would you say? Maybe the first great exposition of something like a revolutionary moment of the digital age i mean there was the arab spring and i don't want to discount that but certainly in america maybe yeah i, I was thinking of um occupy the occupy movement maybe is another example mm-hmm. of that but um mm-hmm. but yeah it definitely feels different a, a little more holistic a little less um a little more universal right that, that no matter who you are mm-hmm. or what medium you're looking at you can't avoid the, the politics of, of right now which i don't think was the case in some of these earlier examples, it was it was easier to ignore what was happening, and it's just it's not that easy right now. Um, you know, it's interesting going on like Instagram or something like that, and you you know, there's people you follow who you you're close with, and there's people you follow because they followed you once or whatever the case is, and like even these people you didn't think of as being political, they're now posting these political <laughs> things. You're like, whoa, that person, that person feels that way. So uh, it's it's a moment still. Uh, we just got to we got to ride this wave and hope that it, it doesn't crash quite yet because it feels like there's there's some momentum still. Yeah, to paraphrase uh, American historian Carl Becker, who said every man his own historian, I would say every man or woman 
his or her own revolutionary right now. And, uh, you know, but it's funny. I, I've made the transition. I mean, I'm used to looking on Instagram, you know, or to post pictures, you know, pleasant pictures of you know, your family or some other, you know, lovely, innocuous thing. But now I'm looking on Instagram to find some of those revolutionary voices, right. you know. So social media, blogs, uh, online media outlets, yeah, it's, um, you know, we're living in a, a time of historical moment, which is sort of inside another shell of historical moment, technologically speaking, which is, of course, the digital age. And uh, so we have sort of concentric circles of revolutionary moment or something. And, and listen, that's not even throwing in the pandemic. Oh my God, it just falls in the background. And meanwhile, cases are growing every day and <laughs> There's been no progress made. We've wasted three months of, of self-isolation, of uh, you know, doing nothing basically. And now it's it's rearing back again. So, this is a this is a, an insane confluence of of different things. And you, you know, you can make the case. And I was talking to somebody the other day about this. That, and I'm certainly not the first person to make this point. But the the fact that people are out in the streets is at least partially due to the fact that so many people are out of work and so many people are stuck at home and, mm -hmm. and people have mm -hmm. all this time they wouldn't normally have or at least perceive themselves having this time. And, you know, you can look at that and say, oh, this is only happening because of this. And if it wasn't for the, for the uh, you know, pandemic, then people wouldn't be doing this. But that's always how it works. With any, any movement, any revolution, there's a set of historical circumstances that have to come into play that gets people out in the streets um it's not it's it doesn't take anything away from our movement to say that it would not be happening if not for a particular set of circumstances because that's always how things happen in, in history uh, no less now than right. than in the past oh you're so right and and some future history teacher is going to have a gold mine of an assignment for students to you know thread together the elements of cause and effect with all this you know uh because i think creatively speaking those elements go in all kinds of, of directions. Uh, I don't know if you saw today, I, I, Nicole Hannah-Jones, who we've talked about before uh, in the context of the 1619 Project, uh, a few episodes back now, uh, you know, let, let's say before the, the current revolution hit, I think we were talking about 1619, let the record show, but uh, she came out with a, a really masterful piece today in the Times, and it's a good example of how you write something, you post it electronically, and almost instantaneously, you know, I don't have to wait for the newspaper delivery, right? right? You know, almost instantaneously, is instantaneously, you have a global forum for something, and, and she's making the case now for reparations in the United States, that is, um, some fundamental financial compensation made to the descendants of the American, of those who were enslaved in America, and the uh, the damaging economic effects of, of of slavery's legacy, and it's so dramatic in its own right because of the moment it's coming. Obviously, she had started with 1619, you know, a few years back, uh, and couldn't have planned in any you know appreciable way for this particular moment, but nevertheless, yeah, like you say, the confluence of these things. And and to my money, Josh, uh, the case she makes in the piece is up to this point at least, the most persuasive, um, uh, well-supported historically uh, case uh, on the biggest stage, as it were, uh, for reparations that, that we've seen, you know? so. 
look, if that's not the revolution in the streets, it's nevertheless Thomas Paine, Lenin, Marx, Franz Fanon, and countless other revolutionaries who have seized that moment to put into words some articulate case for fundamental change. Yeah, we, and we need it. It's overdue, I would say. Uh, I haven't read the piece because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the, pro, the proletariat. I'm like you. I don't have subscription to the Digital New York Times. Uh, so I just have you read me articles. Text me, text me the key, the key points. But um, no, but it's, it's overdue. And, you know, the fact that slavery was abolished in this country with no nothing coming back to the former enslaved people is should be um, uh, unacceptable. Um, you can go to the British Empire as well. The British were a little bit ahead of the game by abolishing slavery in the in the eighteen early eighteen thirties, which didn't take effect until I think eighteen thirty six. But they ended up um, uh, paying back the slaveholders for their loss of property, yes. but not giving anything to the former yes. enslaved people. And and that was for for years. It was one of the biggest elements of the British debt was paying paying off uh, you know the cost of, of abolishment, but not to the, mm-hmm. the enslaved people themselves or the formerly enslaved people but to the, the slave owners. And, and that should be controversial as well. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned it because she does uh, also draw the same point that uh, after the Civil War, the only people compensated for, in effect, slavery, the financially speaking, in this case, the abolition of slavery, were Southern slave owners who could appeal to the federal government to recover damages from loss of property, et cetera, during the war. So no 40 acres and a, and a mule uh, in the long run for those who had been enslaved, uh, but uh, payments made to, not to mention subsequent statues, et cetera, uh, in honor of those who had done the enslaving. And you think about you know the, the bigger meaning of that, that even at the moment of abolishment, or abolition rather, it's in many ways entrenching the idea that, that the enslaved people had been property, right? That it's it, putting that in the record, mm-hmm. right? That, that, mm-hmm. that when they were freed, uh, the slave owners deserve compensation because they had lost quote-unquote property so uh, pr- pretty ugly the way that worked out and certainly I would be enormously in favor of, of reparations it's never too late yeah. you know people will say oh, well why now it's it's never too late uh, the 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 time has come certainly for for real reparations let me read to you just uh, briefly because uh, you know a typical uh, sort of half-hearted in my book or even half-assed you know uh, objection to reparations has, has always been, you know, for white people to say, well, I never owned, I never owned any slaves, yeah. you know. And Nicole Hannah-Jones writes, citizens don't inherit just the glory of their nation, but its wrongs, too. A truly great country does not ignore or excuse its sins. It confronts them and then works to make them right. If we're to be redeemed, if we are to live up to the magnificent ideals upon which we were founded, we must do just that. It's time for this country to pay its debt. It's time for reparations. Amazing. Um, it's absolutely right. And it fits right in with, with what we're going to be talking about today. This is what I was calling today the hag miracle, the history against the grain miracle, that no matter what we decided to talk about, it all ends up fitting together in, in a way that, that makes some sense. And so Hannah Nicole Jones publishing this on this day when we're recording is uh, another one of these hag miracles. We're guided by a higher power here on hag, and that higher power is known as Cleo. Uh, I thought you were going to say Walter Benjamin. The ghost of Walter (laughs) Benjamin, no? Cleo channeled through Walter Benjamin directly to uh, to us. Yeah, Uh, there's no doubt. The the muse of history, 
Cleo. In fact, we gotta we gotta get her on one of our T-shirts now. I think she's done enough for us. We ought to at least. Hey, you're that. the T-shirt guy. I'm just I'm just the editor. All you're right. the you're the artist. I'll go to work. <laughs> so as part of this Hag Miracle today, uh, we have this amazing guest, uh, Jordan McGowan, Coach Mac, as he's known to his students and his athletes. He's a history teacher, and we'll talk about his background. But he's going to talk about a lot of things, but including his own historical journey, how he came to kind of politics and revolutionary politics and, and black revolutionary politics in particular, and then how that translates to the classroom and, and his bigger projects of decolonizing the classroom and then having a vision for a different way of, of, of education for the young people in this country. So enjoy, everybody. Here is our interview with Jordan McGowan. Well, every week, Chris opens the episode by telling you this is not the history your coach taught you. But for this week, this is the history your coach taught you, because we are very happy to have with us today Jordan McGowan, Coach Mac, as he's known to his students and to his athletes. And Jordan is a social studies history teacher at Rio Tierra Middle School in Sacramento. He also coaches football at Sac uh, City College and coaches basketball at Rio Tierra as well. And we're going to talk to Jordan today about um, his approach to history and the way that his own politics and, and his upbringing and his way of thinking about history translates into, cla- into the classroom. So welcome, Jordan. Thank you. Thank you guys for having me. I really appreciate the time we've spent to, got to, to get to know each other and um, you know, just the conversations we've been able to share regarding history and the current moment in time we're in. Yeah, I think, you know, the reason I wanted to have you on, we wanted to have you on is because I think you, you, your voice is really important right now. You're saying really important stuff. And then, you know, in addition, because of your position in, uh, you know, a middle school classroom, you have this, this opportunity to, to kind of talk to kids about this stuff in, in, in ways that I think a lot of people are not having those conversations. Um, and so, I, I, you know, we're just really thrilled to have you on to talk about this stuff. Definitely. I want to start by talking about your kind of historical consciousness, the way you kind of came to history and the way you think about history, because I think, you know, this thing you often get in the classroom is is students saying, I don't, I never liked history. But what they're really saying is that they don't connect with history, that history doesn't have, you know, any particular meaning for them. But, you know, as you're talking to you, that did not seem to be the case when you grew up. It seems like history was very vital to you and very important to, to, you know, how you thought about yourself and, and the world around you. Yeah, so I was uh, really blessed to be in a unique situation. Uh, my father had me later on in life, um, and he was a Vietnam War veteran, uh, you know, drafted. Uh, he was in college, you know, uh, attending San Francisco City College, playing football, um, and he, you know, got a letter in the mail saying he was, you know, drafted into the armed services, I mean, to the military, and so. He actually kind of played the system and uh, um, was able to keep his summer by enlisting in the Marines um, instead of just going into the, the Army. Um, like when he was drafted, he made a deal with the Marines, and so he got to spend his summer partying. Um, but then he went down to boot camp, Camp Pendleton, um, and then, you know, obviously after training, uh, shipped off to Vietnam where he served you know, a 15-month tour. Um, at Quezon during the 68 Tet Offensive. Um, he arrived uh, right after the start of Tet. 
um, I think the end of January, the beginning of February. Um, and so obviously just that in itself is going to give me a, a, just a different understanding of history because I have to understand my father. And I was um, raised primarily by my father. And so um, that's a, a huge factor of just, you know, the way he parented me, the way um, that he saw the world, the way I saw the world. And so um, obviously his 13 month tour, he, you know, he got a purple heart. Um, his, he was a squad leader and his, you know, his team actually took home three PUC's presidential unit citations, which is like similar to the Medal of Honor, but for your entire unit. Um, so like needless to say, like he saw all the horrors of war. Um, and so he comes home and he's recruited to be a Panther. Um, and and my, you know, my father, you know, joins um, or, or is in the process of joining He's court-martialed uh, for a letter that he wrote to you know, one of his soldiers when he's back home talking about how the government's lying to the people. You know, uh, you know he's partying in, in San Francisco and, you know, in 69. Um, so he's doing, you know, he's doing his thing. And so he court-martialed um, for the letter. At the same time, obviously, he even, you know, attending meetings and rallies and, uh, you know, uh, showing interest in the party. So the FBI um, actually came to my grandmother's house looking for my dad, you know, pretty much scared my, my grandmother. Um, so essentially, uh, you know, the, the agents that came to the house um, insinuated to my grandmother that, you know, if my father continued down the path that he was on, that he was going to end up in a casket, regardless if it was in Vietnam or if it was here in the States. And so uh, my dad kind of fell back and try to just move on with a, you know, a regular civilian life. Um, and obviously, you know, as his son, this was something that he instilled in me from a very early age, you know, awareness of um, black power, um, awareness of just like the true history um, of the, the struggle for liberation in the country, um, like a deep sense, you know, and, and power given being black and embracing that. And so, for me, it's it's kind of been a, a conscious thought my entire life of being very intentional about things that I do and understanding my place in the world as a black man and how to navigate those systems in, in the most revolutionary way possible. Yeah, that's that's so important to kind of think about, you know, because we are we're all products of our, our our history, but I don't know that everybody is as conscious of that as, as you seem to have been, right? We kind of just go through the, the, the motions of, of living in this history, but you seem to have been, you know, as, as you said, very intentional about, you know, kind of this, this particular upbringing you had and what that meant for how you were going to, to live your life. So you, you eventually end up becoming a teacher and you, you're teaching now at, as I said earlier, Rio Tierra Middle School. And so you come in with pretty particular politics that, you know, that comes out of, as you, you just talked about your upbringing, but it's one thing to have those those politics and have that that sense of you know what you want to do, and another thing to translate that into a middle school classroom, where at least in theory there's supposed to be a particular curriculum you're supposed to be, be be going over. So how do you how do you end up translating what you know we can call the kind of black radical thought into a middle school classroom? I think for me, um, I try not to I try to approach um, teaching the same way. I approach um, the way I would try to just build a relationship with anyone in life, right? Whether we are coaches, we are teachers, uh, parents, uh, big 
brothers, uncles, um, you know, the, the captain on the team, you, you learn how to teach. Right. And I think like we're, we're all innately, you know, in some shape or fashion, we're teachers, right. Even if it's the big brother. So we have those, those ideas. And so for me, it's not about like, Hey, I'm going to tell you to, to be like me or to think like me. I want you to understand that the power that you have in your own voice and understand that you have agency, right? And so um, I think this also comes from the fact, like, I never thought I was going to be a teacher, right? I mm-hmm. had to go to law school, and my idea was to fight for justice my entire life. And like, that was what actually my dad groomed me for. And, like, you know, actually on his deathbed, like, made me promise, like, I would go to law school. So I'm a little, you know, I'm still a little nervous of that. I mean, yeah, yeah. At some point, but um, still time. I yeah, for sure. Um, but I know that like fight, like I knew from an early age, like fighting for what is right, fighting for justice. Um, that was like, what is supposed to happen, right? And whether that's on a football team where I'm trying to get everyone to do what they're supposed to do so that we can be champions, or whether that's in my classroom where we're gonna watch the way that we talk to people because we're not going to disrespect anybody's identity in my classroom. I think all those things kind of just go hand in hand. Um, obviously with the curriculum piece, uh, there's standards that you, you have to hit. Right? And I actually started posting um, some of like my, you know, my, um, my lesson, my lesson on online just recently, just to show people like, this is the way you decolonize the classroom through, uh, like taking these standards and making them culturally relevant, right? So um, I think for me, you know, when you think of the Panthers, their fifth platform was like, we want an education that tells the true history of our people. And so I'm teaching, you know, right now, right now I'm teaching seventh and eighth grade history. So in seventh grade, I'm teaching ancient civilizations. And in eighth grade, I'm teaching U.S. history from the colonies until reconstruction. So how do I show how do I empower our students? How do I get them to see themselves in the curriculum? How do I get them to see um, the errors or the shortcomings of these documents, these living documents, which are supposed to govern the entire country? How do these things live? How do they play out as in the lived experience of the people who are actually here? And, and for a lot of times, like my kids are brown kids, so how do our lived experiences Line up to what is promised in these, you know, these documents that are supposed to be the law of the land. Um, or in, you know, in seventh grade, it's like getting them to understand the genius and the greatness uh, and the value that these ancient civilizations that weren't white, what did they bring? What did, you know, what did Mesoamerica bring? What did West Africa bring? What did, you know, uh, the Chinese dynasties contribute to society that we still use today? How do we see those things still being manifested? Um, those traditions being carried on. Um, and so I think when kids start to see that, they're able to be radically educated, right? Because now they're not, they're not just learning to pass a test. They're learning with interest and with engagement due to the fact that this is something that I can connect with, like you said. You know, Jordan, it's something I'm, I'm very much dedicated to in my own right. And, and what I'm talking about here is this idea that we've heard 
I think more recently in the mainstream of sort of educational talk is decolonizing the classroom. And I know you're, you're well familiar with the basic tenets of this, but for our listeners, uh, you've described it a, a bit, but I mean, it, among other things, decolonizing the classroom recognizes that the classroom itself and the school that it's a part of and the district and the whole educational system was created under, a, you know, on a premise of white supremacy. Uh, and so to decolonize the classroom, it's a multifaceted approach to a new way of, of educating, particularly disproportionately impacted students. That is to say, students who have been underserved uh, by that that model. And it would seem to me that that connects directly up with your interests in racial justice and social justice and as a history uh, teacher in particular. So yeah, if you can relate just a little bit more of what that means to you, that decolonizing the classroom, I think our listeners would, would really benefit. I guess my first, um, my first like concept of this was probably when I was reading um, Asada Shakur, right? And I think this is like what brought it home for me. And so I actually open up the school year every year with quote. So students um, on the first day, they, they learn all about me, why I think history is so important. Um, so the quote from Asada Shakur says, the schools we go to are reflections of the society that created them. Nobody is going to give you the education you need to overthrow them. Nobody is going to teach you your true history teach you your true heroes if they know that that knowledge will help set you free. And so for me, it's this idea that like decolonizing the classroom is understanding that these schools are set up against our kids. So that's, that's number one. So how do we navigate this system and how do we truly learn when we know that the school system initially was set up just really for, you know, white male children of parents who owned land. And so when we start to look at that, like that's a very small percentage of our students, and especially at the school that I, you know, the schools that I have taught at, it's it's you know, it's very low. And so, how do I teach my kids, my black and brown students, um, and my white students as well? But again, how do you navigate the system that wasn't designed for you? So, how do we get? Uh, the education that we need? How do we build the skills that we need? How do we start to think critically so we can examine things? Um, and for me, that's where it comes down to. So um, like my classroom, I have flex seating, right? Because like, we know that not everybody learns the same. Um, I have a variety of different tools um, that we use to deliver instruction. And, and, and every day I have some um, incorporation of like movement into my classroom. I don't have those like sit down and be quiet, you know, and it's as simple as relationship building uh, some of it, right? Because if you start to, I'm actually working on this um, like for professional development right now to, to kind of start bringing to, to sites, um, you know, here in the Sacramento area. And um, I, again, as a coach, right? Like the last chance you is coming out and, so they released the, the commercial and the Laney College in Oakland. I know the coaches, they're great coaches. Um, and he says, football is a family. And he says, the thing about junior college football is you have a new family every year. And for me, that's the exact same approach I take in my classroom. Every period is a family. 
every period is a unique classroom community and we're going to honor people in there. We're going to, you know, we're going to have rules that the entire class community decides on. Right. And we're going to make sure that we uphold the standard of that community. So one, it's just relationship building. Right. And that goes into how do I deal with discipline? So I haven't given out a referral in over three years. Like, how does that happen? We might stop and, and stop the lesson because we're going to address you know, the harm that has been done in class, but we're not going to send a kid out because ultimately what, what good is that doing? Right? And now they're behind, right? I have, um, like, it's as simple as, you know, I go to the office uh, and like once a week and make sure that I get pencils, pens, and paper. And if kids need them, they can come get them from me. I have a system, right? So where they have to be accountable, where they will trade me something like, student ID card or uh, their backpack or their AirPods, right? And you get a pencil or you get whatever you need. And in turn, you can keep it for the whole day. You can keep it for just period, but you can trade me back, right? And so like setting up these systems to where pe- you make it to where kids are going to be able to be successful, right? So it's, it's really like being on the same team as your students. That's like the first thing I think of. Um, and then I think of obviously, you know, again, and that comes with discipline. So those are kind of married together. And then you think of curriculum. Um, And again, for me, it looks like how can I create culturally relevant curriculum in my classroom? And I think for a lot of teachers, that's the problem because uh, I've heard so many teachers say, well, I get paid to teach, not to make curriculum. And while that might be true, you can't like effectively teach if the material is poor. And so for me, it's about how do I take these primary sources? How do I, how do I get kids to see and look at object, like objectivity or perspective or bias? So now we're going to look at the situation. We're going to look at an event, historical event, you know, in three different perspectives. And now I'm going to allow the kids to make to form their opinions. Hey, look what, uh, you know, we, we got the Louisiana Purchase. The Louisiana Purchase is great. Like, how do we get the Louisiana Purchase? Because of the Haitian Revolution. Like, let's see how all of these things are interconnected. And so... When you start to do things like that, and now my students are learning about, you know, this, this uprising of enslaved Africans that really changed the trajectory of American history. Now a kid who's, who's Haitian can connect with the Louisiana Purchase, you know, and so it's 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 starting to build those things. Um, again, I am trying to, I'm trying to write this article and finish it, um, and I'm talking about you know. Uh, a singer or musician from the Bay Area, and I, you know, I reference griots from West Africa. Right? It's simple things like that. Is like tying in cultural things that students understand and see every day, um, and getting it into the curriculum. Again, I teach in Sacramento, so when I teach Mesoamerica, um, you know, we talk about the pyramids and we talk about, you know, Pocatok um, uh, courts and things like that. And if we related to Sacramento, how there's Golden One Arena and there's downtown. And so kids start to start to see how these things have translated into their life. And again, Mesoamerica, a lot of my kids look like that. A lot of my kids understand uh, when we go over the Bill of Rights and we're talking about the Central Park Five or Khalif Browder, they understand what it feels like to be a teenager and have the police, you know, pull you over or unfairly, you know, arrest you. So now they're able to tangibly connect to this material and understand the relation it has to their life and why it matters. Um, and now they're more engaged, 
Right. So I think it's really just all it, it, it's all a, a part again of this idea of decolonizing the classroom and getting it to where people can learn um, in different mediums. They can express their their knowledge in different ways, um, but but allowing and giving everyone the opportunity to to learn and to be successful in the classroom. And a lot of it just comes down to how can I make this relevant for my students and how can I be on their team? It just occurred to me when you're talking about, you know, the fact you haven't given a referral in three years, I, maybe there's an obvious connection here to policing, but uh, you know, the, the critique of when people say abolish the police, well, without the police, there's, there's going to, it's going to be chaos and anarchy. And I think there's probably a lot of teachers who say, well, if I, if I don't give referrals, my classrooms are going to be, you know, out of control. I won't be able to, to, to teach if I'm not, you know, kind of bringing down the, the long arm of the law on my students. But you're kind of demonstrating that you don't need to take that approach, that in some ways, when you give these referrals, certainly when you arrest somebody, then the whole trajectory of that, that individual is going to be changed, right? And so the, the way I came into um, not sending kids out and not writing referrals was I had, um, I believe it was an administrator, and he said, he said, you do a wonderful job of managing your classroom. Um, the only thing I would, and this was like my first teacher, right? I was a little stubby, and he said, the only thing I would tell you is don't be so quick to send kids out. And I was like, okay, why? Because, you know, initially, like, that's the thing you get taught, right? Like, be stern, be strict. And he said, well, you lose all power. He said, as a sub, you know, maybe it's a little different. He said, but when you're the classroom teacher, if you send the kid out, you have lost all power. But he said, you you no longer control what the, the kids, you know, what the kids restorative, you know, pieces like, or you have no, uh, you know, authority over his punishment. You have no say in, you know, fixing the situation. And so you lose all power. That kid comes back in and it's usually still animosity between the two of you. It was like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Whereas if I handle it in my classroom, I have all power. Not in a bad way, but like I'm going to control how, you know, how this student is entering back into my classroom or how this, this student is going to choose to go forward. Right. When I say I don't send kids out, I mean, I they'll go outside and then, you know, take a breath and we'll have a conversation. But as far as like you're going to be out of my classroom, no, that doesn't happen because we're going to have a conversation. And, and it might be uncomfortable. You might not like it it might take way longer than I thought it was going to, <laughs> right? Um, and sometimes it's privately and sometimes it is publicly, right? It depends on how the harm was, you know, how the harm was uh, caused in my class, right? But we're going to restore our classroom community to the level that we all agreed on at the, at the very beginning of school. And that's important to me. Right. And so when our classroom culture is a certain way, everything flows smoothly. And while it might not, again, be like better, like all the guests are in a row, all the kids are quietly just writing in their notebooks. Um, I think it's for lack of a better word, like unintelligent for us to believe that students should still learn that way. Right. I mean, I think I gave you guys this analogy the other day and I, I, I tell people all the time. No one, I just got a new phone for Father's Day, right? I got the iPhone 11. Nice. Nobody's still walking around using the iPhone 1. Mm -hmm. 
Nobody is, right? Because Apple has made improvements. Same thing with cars. Same thing with TVs. Like literally every single thing we can think of has evolved. Why has education not? It doesn't make sense. We, we now know all of these things to be, you know, our world is completely different, yet we still think, hey, we should just have kids sit down, be quiet, take out a pencil, read a book, and write down stuff. Nobody learns like that anymore. <laughs> right. You know? That's yeah. not the world we live in. We have computers in our hands. So how do we use those things to be? And so for me, again, it's all about teaching skills over teaching like I don't, we don't memorize dates in my class. We don't, you know, there might be like, you know, you need to know the causes of the civil war. You need to know the, the causes of the revolution or some of the causes, but you don't need to know dates, right? Because I can just, Hey, Alexa, Hey Siri, Hey, whatever. <laughs> and we can get those <laughs> yeah, at the drop of a hat. Right. And it's like, right. it you smart to know those dates, right? Like what makes you smart is being able to critically think, to research, to read, and analyze to look at different object, like different perspectives, and then create your own. That's what's helpful. Mm -hmm. that's what intelligence is. So how do we do that in the classroom, right? And that's that's the thing that's most important for all students. Not just you know when we talk about decolonizing the classroom, it's often looked at as like just for students of color. Like it definitely is going to dramatically uh, benefit students of color, but these practices are best practices for all students all around. Right. Yeah, well said. Today in the New York Times, uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones uh, published her piece, and it's an important, very important piece, in fact, uh, on the issue of, of reparations um, for African-Americans um, due to uh, the you know, profound injustices, economic injustices of slavery and its legacy. And I mentioned that because we've talked about her work before we talked to some other teachers about the 1619 project. And as she talks specifically in this article about reparations, you know, there are a lot of different facets to reparations. Uh, but one of them potentially is uh, through education funding. And so I want to put you on the spot a little bit. And I want to say, you know, if, if the country commits itself to the, uh, genuine funding and 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 i mean overcoming long disparities long um running disparities in educational funding particularly in communities that are underserved uh, and that we can begin funding like we should uh these schools I, I know you've talked a little bit about having an interest and going in that direction yourself maybe with the charter school or something um how do you see that new school? What's a, what's a decolonized school look like more broadly? Um, so to me, uh, and, and this is this is exactly what I want to build out, and this is my vision. Um, it's crazy. When I first moved to Sacramento, um, I was working at St. Hope, and I remember sitting on my break, and I had this vision. I took out my iPhone, and... I wrote in my notes that I was going to start this Athletes Academy. And the Athletes Academy was going to, I was going to start training, you know, uh, football players. Um, and then from there, I was going to kind of get it, you know, bigger with the training. And I was going to kind of, and from academic mentorship, we, you know, we were going to try to build it into a school. 
I wrote that in 2013, like as a super young educator. And then of course, like my ambition and my, my competitive drive as a athlete, like shown through, you know, came through as a coach, right? And so I was like, oh, I want to coach at the collegiate level, at the highest collegiate level. And so I kind of, kind of, you know, pushed that, that vision off, right? And, and just, you know, trying to put myself in a position to become, um, you know, go to power five school for a lucrative contract right and so as i'm making these moves i'm trying to i'm trying to navigate these waters and i i really hadn't thought too much about you know revisiting the idea of trying to build this this vision up um fast forward to last you know last year um, i'm a huge nipsey hustle fan and after nipsey hustle was murdered i like felt like i needed to figure out my next marathon I need to continue my, my growth because there's been so many different things that I've kind of looked at in that way. And so I was like, what's my next step? What's my next race? And I was like, I think I'm going to get my doctor. And so I started, you know, wrestling with the fact of like, okay, am I going to pursue this doctorate degree and, and more than likely have to step away from coaching? Um, it was something I wrestled with because I love coaching. I love the sport. I, I just everything about it. Competing. I, I love to talk mess, right? I, <laughs> like so, um, I was like really struggling with this idea of walking away from coaching. Um, and so, you know, uh, at the same time, I had a couple buddies who had some opportunities for me again, maybe to try to move up in the coaching world. And I was like, man, what, what should I do? Um, and so I was, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, faith, I'm a faith, faith man. And so I, uh, I prayed and was like, man, what should I do? And I really felt like God told me, Hey, remember that school? <laughs> and I was like, Oh yeah. Like, so I, the last year I've been working on trying to develop a, um, a proposal for a school, um, in honor of Nipsey Hussle. And, and it is what a decolonized school looks like. And so I've been, you know, examining that and looking at how it looks in my classroom and even ways I can improve and uh, different schools that um, I see that are, you know, making those steps. And so for me, um, I, again, because of my student athlete background, I, I want the school that I kind of uh, look to build to be almost like a student athlete academy. Um, but it looks like, you know, the care for students is genuine across the entire campus. Right. And there are people who are invested in students um, in their lives for the long run. Every single position in the school right? and, every, and, and, and my vision at this point would be like everybody on campus um, would be involved in an And this is not students. This is like faculty staff. Right? Like if you're a teacher, you're a coach. Right? If, and if you don't coach, like you're, maybe you have a background in athletic training or, or you're a nutritionist, right? Like you're invested in the students all the time. Um, and so um, that's kind of the vision that I have as far as like, what does your staff look like? It looks like people who are just invested in students, right? Um, and then what does the curriculum look um, You know, an education that exposes the true nature of the American society our true history and our role in present society. And I think that student athletes have such an amazing and immense power in their unified voice that, that 
a lot of them don't know. And so how can I get these future leaders, right, these future uh, just impact makers, right, to understand their power, to be empowered, to understand their greatness, right, um, to get them to constantly pursue their greatness, right? And so um, it looks like, you know, completely changing to me the way that um, we teach. And again, it goes, it goes into that relationship building. It looks like restorative justice. It looks like counselors that are able to provide social emotional learning. It goes into, you know, uh, like teaching sustainability with gardening and other vocations. It teaches, um, you know, life skills and how to, you know, how to manage your finances. It goes into the things that are to truly eradicate um, these systems and forms of oppression that we see all the time. Um, and so that's kind of, to me, what it looks like. <laughs> Beautiful. It's a holistic vision. A hundred percent a holistic vision. You know, it's just, it's powerful stuff. And it's, you know, the idea that we just don't have to accept the structures and the systems for what they are that, you know, even in your own individual classroom, you can, you can begin breaking those things down. Um, and that it's okay to have a broader vision as well that, you know, um, you can reach a lot of students in your classroom, but, but the idea that you're not going to stop there, that there's these other ways you can make an impact. And that's, you know, I know you're, you're giving a talk, you're going to start giving talks in community centers, um, you know, your, your vision for the school. And it's, it's really inspiring to, to hear you talk about these kind of issues. Thank you. I think, you know, for right now, it's just like, we have an opportunity where people's eyes were opened. Right. And I think, um, people are, I, I, I'm not for, I like, I don't like, I think there's power in the tongue. Right. And I think, um, protesters chanting, I can't breathe. I think that's, I think that's kind of right. But I, you know, I, but I think we've gotten to this point where, um, it was politically acceptable to say that black lives matter. Right? So, but how do we take this momentum that has been established black lives matter, and show that black lives matter way before they're dead? How do black lives matter? I heard this article um, last night. So she's a teacher. Uh, she's an educator as well. Right? And she said, black death is a threat to everything I work and live for. So when I see it happen, when a skit happens, I can't help but relate it to what I see, experience, and feel to my work. When anything goes down with Black people, I think about education in schools and whether I am a part of something that is preserving Black life or failing it. And she goes on to say, in the same way that folks are tired of the viral Black death, protests, fake trial, acquittal, rinse, repeat cycle, I am tired of folks acting like there is no direct connection between the schools where white children sit and the street corners where they choke out black lives. And, it, and it's this idea that all of these systems are connected. Right? And I mean, we know, um, like in Sacramento, the sheriff's department has a budget of over, over 150 million. The police, same thing, over 150 million. But libraries here get less than a million dollars. Park and recs gets, you know, 14.4. Housing is less than four. And gang prevention is less than three million. Right. But how many of those those crime issues are solved if we start pouring money into these schools? Right. If if kids are able to actually have counselors that they can talk to, right? because I know at the, every school I've worked at, the counselors are never able to address any social emotional issues. Right. They're constantly dealing with master schedule. Mm -hmm. So how do we how do we get it to where students actually have the services they need? 
Um, how do we have it to where, you know, kids are learning how to cope and work through issues um, without violence? Right? Because if you don't learn that skill, then when you become an adult, what naturally happens? You solve all of your issues with violence, right? And so now it's like, oh, they're a super predator. Like, they're not a super predator. They were just never taught how to do this. <laughs> right. And it's not an accident. It's not an accident. You know what I mean? It's not an accident that you were never taught how to do this. I tell people all the time, it's not an accident that the first thing you learn in school about black people is that they were slaves. Mm-hmm. It's intentional, right? Because now you should, the first thing you think of when you think of black people is they're not worthy. As a black person, you internalize that. So when you're younger, right, in grade school, it's like, like well, at least when I was growing up, I hope not now, but the, you know, the joke was like, oh, you're an African booty scratcher. And it's like, we would try to distance ourselves from the continent, right? And mm-hmm. really, like, nah, like, every single black person here is an African, right? And it's not a bad thing. But like, we, we qualified blackness, right? And we, we were made, like, again, the Malcolm X book, who made you hate yourself, right? And so you hate yourself and everything that looks like you from a young age. So early it's name calling, right? And then, on, and then it's later, it's on the blacktop fighting. And in middle school and high school, like maybe we have guns. Taking your life is matters because I've already learned that people who look like you and me don't matter to society. That's intentional. And so I, I think just like you said, just the idea that we can live in a different world, like for me, is is something that we that I've I've always felt and I've felt it my entire life. Right, um, and I think I've, I've been longing for this moment. Right, like in growing up, knowing the history of Mama, I knew about Kent State. I knew about um, the '60 Olympic Games. I've been waiting for these moments where, where you know, everyone was going to kind of jump on board. This is the closest we have we've had ever. People are again starting to see the Black Lives Matter. So now it's up to us who have no always known that, who have always been in the fight for liberation to take Black Lives Matter, okay, if Black Lives Matter, then they matter before they die. They matter before you see a video. They matter before they're beat. They matter when they're first born. They matter when their mother is pregnant. The doctor doesn't believe there's something wrong. Black Lives Matter, uh, when they first enter school, that they're not you know, being suspended at a higher rate as early as three. Black Lives Matter when when that kid who hasn't eaten all day disrupts your class, my class still matter then. So I think for me, I'm away from Black Lives Matter and into Black Power, um, you know, even more because how do we create that power, right? So that those lives do indeed matter. And I think so many people confuse Black Power with this idea of Black people being the ruling class elite and black power is really just being a self-actualized people, right? Like in black power, the politics of liberation in America, Kwame Ture and Charles Hamilton Wright, our basic need is to reclaim our history and our identity from what must be called cultural terrorism. We shall have to struggle for the right to create our own terms through which to define ourselves and our relationship to the society and to have these terms recognized. This is the first necessity of a free people. That's what black power is, like having the autonomy to be free. And so 
to me, that's what um, I think this moment lends itself to. And so that we have to just, I think it's amazing that you see like the WNBA player, uh, I think multiple players who have even said, hey, I'm not play this year, I'm on social justice issues, I'm really spoken up. So like, getting these athletes to speak up, getting these musicians, like these mu- musical artists to speak up, um, getting people to just understand and like, and really realize like, these systems that we've been so accustomed to uh, living with are truly uh, systems of oppression. And so how can we take the steps to dismantle them? I think um, at least ears, ears are open and eyes are on us at this point. And so I think, you know, we have to at least we have to at least go down swinging, right? <laughs> Absolutely. I actually want to take us out with a with a really relevant quote because it kind of speaks to what you were just saying. This comes from Amy Césaire, lived in the uh, in Martinique in the French Caribbean, and in 1956 he resigned from the French Communist Party basically because he said the French Communist Party is treating us like we're colonized people instead of as um, you know kind of allies in liberation. He says, "quote At the present time, the world is at an impasse. This can only mean one thing: not that there's no way out." but that the time has come to abandon all the old ways which have led to fraud, tyranny, and murder. Suffice to say that for our part, we no longer want to remain content with being present while others do politics, while they get nowhere, while they make deals, while they perform makeshift repairs in their consciences and engage in casuistry. Our time has come. So thanks, Jordan, for being with us. And um, maybe we can have you on again at some time because you got so much to say and, um, and uh, you know, we'd love to hear more from you. Yeah, there's more truth to come. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely, and I appreciate you guys having me. And I, again, I'd be welcome. I'd be happy to join anytime. Thanks, Will. Well, you know, that's why we want to have uh, guests on History Against the Grain, Josh. Hey, you know, I mean, this is a voice that needs an audience. Uh, a vital voice, an impassioned voice. And as we've been saying, with no pretense to so-called objectivity, a voice of, uh, of moral clarity. Yeah, that's, that's what I kind of was hearing there too. And the thing that I loved about what he was saying is that what he's kind of showing is that we don't need to live these lives where our political and social imaginations are constrained by whatever the society says we we should be constrained by that you know his his idea of creating this school is is a great example of of a realistic thing you can do right but you've got to have mm-hmm. the desire to do it you've got to have the, the will to do it you've got to have uh you've got to get your voice heard to do it but it's it's you know i think if you just told somebody i'm going to create a school you might get eye rolls and then you hear him talking about it and you're like he's going to start a school this is going to happen because He's not limiting himself to, um, you can reach a lot of people in the classroom, certainly, but, uh, but not limiting yourself to, to what the society tells you should limit yourself to is, is, is itself powerful. And uh, so I, I appreciated hearing that from him. Yeah, that's well said. And, you know, it, it pays to remember, and, and, and it's a theme of our podcast today, that a school is an institution, as a, as a physical place, especially, you know, as, a, as they say, a brick and mortar uh, presence in a community creates a certain focal point or a, a certain uh, space within the larger uh, town or city, what have you, uh, through which the energies of that place, that space, you know, translate. Uh, 
um, in, in the form of, of students, but also teachers and parents and community events, whether it be football games or, you know, speech and debate tournaments, any number of things, a kind of, you know, life energy of the community itself. And as we're suggesting uh, today, certainly in today's episode, that reclaiming those public spaces with the right energy and the right commitment has everything to do with then the kind of, of world we end up living in. Yeah, this is you know another great example of that hag miracle we were talking about in, in the first segment, because we had planned today to talk about, you know, the way that power is reflected in, our, in the kind of physical environment uh, of a society, and and then uh, talking to Jordan, this is not necessarily what, what was planned, but he's basically talking about that that same sort of thing in many ways. He had that quote from Asada Shakur uh, that the schools that we go to are reflections of the society that created them, and that's absolutely what you see when you go to schools in poor neighborhoods and then go to schools in, in richer neighborhoods you see what society values and we you see who society values and that's been the case forever basically in, in human history since there's been states those states that power structure have have attempted to signify their own power through the construction of physical monuments and physical spaces um, you know famously obviously the pyramids themselves are enormous projections of power um, among other things, but you gaze upon those things and you understand where the power lies, who has the power, what it means to have power, who's valued, who's not valued, all that sort of thing. And obviously that has not ended as we moved into the, uh, the modern age as well. So I want to read a quote from, we're, we're big fans here, obviously, of, of the, uh, these uh, radical uh, African diaspora scholars we've quoted frequently from Amy Zare, at least I have, and Franz Fanon is another guy within that, uh, that community as well. And so I just want to read a little bit of what he says about power in physical spaces. He says, quote, The town belonged to the colonized people, or at least the native town. The Negro village, the Medina, the reservation is a place of ill fame, peopled by men of evil repute. They are born there. It matters little where or how. They die there. It matters not where nor how. It is a world without spaciousness. Men live there on top of each other, and their huts are built one on top of the other. The native town is a hungry town, starved of bread, of meat, of shoes, of coal, of light. The native town is a crouching village, a town on its knees, a town wallowing in the mire. This world divided into compartments. This world cut into two. So he's describing basically his own experiences um, first of all, growing up in a colony in, in Martinique, but more so his experiences living in, in Algeria, French Algeria, and seeing the way that power worked in that location. Um, and it's, again, what he's observing is that power is written into the physical environment. Uh, before the quote I read, he's describing the, the quote-unquote settler town. And, and, you know, everything I just said about or just read about the native town, as he calls it, is based the reverse. Uh, the settler town is clean and the trash is put into receptacles and people wear shoes even though the streets are clean and they probably don't need shoes. And um, and this is something that continues to be the case in our own society today, that we constantly have these, or frequently have these descriptions of physical spaces that are themselves kind of code words. So when people say the inner city, for instance, you know, that's descriptive in the sense that the inner city is somewhere within the city, I guess. But that's not what it's supposed to mean. The inner city is supposed to conjure up 
certain images in your head. And when, for instance, uh, you know, on CNN, when they refer to suburban voters, right, that's supposed to conjure up an image as well, not just a certain place, but people as well. Uh, white voters, essentially, what they're trying to say there. And, you know, you think about ideas like the wrong side of the tracks. There's so many of these descriptions of our communities, of our societies that are really describing physical spaces and in doing so are putting across an idea of, of power as well, who has it, who doesn't have it, who lives in these, uh, these native towns, as Fanon describes, and who lives in the settler towns, as he describes as well. Um, again, this is not a new thing, which I, I mentioned, you know, kind of early states like Egypt enshrining power in their monuments. But there's a fun example as well from, from France. Um, you know, the city of Paris is famous for its, its boulevards, right? The wide boulevards of Paris, uh, the old joke, why did they build their boulevards so large? So the, the Germans could walk, march down them when they enter the city. Um, I don't know if that's that funny anymore, but, uh, but it was an old joke. <laughs> But the reality is, the French take the French take a lot of abuse in the, the area of joke telling. They, they really do, yeah. Sorry, French. <laughs> but uh, but the reality of, of those wide boulevards is is much more interesting than that bad old joke. Um, you know, from 1789, the, the beginnings of the French Revolution, up through about the 1850s, there had been a series of these moments in Paris itself where. Uh, the the communities in the city, the working class communities in particular, when they stood up to the government uh, and the government tried to react and put down their movements, what the working class would do is, is barricade the streets. They'd put up whatever they could. They'd literally rip out paving stones and pile them up. They'd take furniture out of the homes and pile them up. And these narrow streets, what they could do is kind of funnel the government forces into these narrow streets. They could set up these barricades to limit their movement. And then they could attack them or they could get away from them if need be. And it was really hard for the government, for the state, to put down these movements because of the manner of the physical spaces in Paris. Um, in, uh, I think it's 1851, uh, after another revolution, you, re you mentioned the revolution of 1848 earlier, a new government emerged under Louis Napoleon, uh, the famous Napoleon's nephew. And one of the things he did upon taking power was he ordered the complete restructuring of Paris. They were going to rebuild it basically from bottom up and, and put in sewers and, you know, modern sanitation and, and new streets and new uh, uh, public buildings and all these sort of things. But one of the things that they did as well in that is they widened the streets. And this is why we have, again, these famous wide boulevards of Paris, which are part of Paris's beauty, part of Paris's renown, certainly. But you can make a case, and it's not a hard case to make, that when Louis Napoleon ordered the widening of these streets, he was also seeking to take control of those physical spaces. Uh, by widening the boulevards, it became much more difficult for the working classes when they rebelled, which they would again uh, at the end of Louis Napoleon's reign. It was much harder for them to, um, to barricade the streets, to uh, force government forces into these untenable situations in these narrow streets. And in fact, in the Paris Commune, which we talked about a little bit last week, uh, when it came to an end in 1871, it was put down because ultimately government forces could march into the city and could fight within the city uh, through these now much less congested streets uh, as they brought their armies down them. So, so the, the, the point is then that these, these physical spaces, which we kind of take for granted, which we don't necessarily even see when we, we experience them, are always telling us something, right? When you go to these quote-unquote inner city schools, when you go to these suburban schools, you're seeing the power structure right in front of you, um, but we see it so often that we don't even notice it 
all the time when, when we see it, but it's always there. Um, and so it's something worth thinking about. And as we move on now, Chris is going to give us an example of, of these physical spaces and the way power is getting coded in those spaces. So take it away, Chris. Yeah, thanks, Josh. Uh, I like the, the example from Paris and the, uh, the boulevards, the great boulevards of Paris, as a kind of internal defense mechanism for power. Uh, because here in our uh, country in the United States, we, we also have those sorts of landmarks. I mentioned last episode about the Hopi Indians of the Arizona mesas and how they sacralize their landscape by creating sacred shrines at various geographical points. Well, think of what we're about to talk about here as, if, if not the sacralizing exactly of the urban landscape of America, certainly the militarizing of that landscape. And the example I want to talk about here is that of what we sometimes call the armory building phase of the late 1800s. And we have to do some adjustment here because when we think of armories, uh, you know, we think of these places that whose vestigial purpose, you know, kind of like your appendix or something, you know, has long since been forgotten. Um, we tend to see them as places where there are community events, right? You know, uh, an armory dance or dog show, maybe a basketball game. Sometimes they served as concert venues, you know, uh, or exhibition halls of one kind or another, even homeless shelters for that matter, you know. Um, maybe the most famous sort of non-originally intended use of an armory uh, came as early as 1913 in New York City, the famous uh, armory show art show of 1913, which introduced uh, bewildered American audiences to the vanguard of styles coming out of Europe, including Cubism and Futurism, modern, Modernism, etc. cetera. Uh, but that's not what those armories were constructed for. Um, you know, for all of that, what had really inspired the construction of these public buildings was not, I'm sorry to say, Josh, art or music. Um, yeah, no, in the great wave of armory construction of the late 1800s, when, when I might add the armory building became nearly as, as familiar as, you know, a city hall building or maybe even you know, the golden arches, <laughs> you know, with the 20th century, that is the nearly universal presence of these buildings, um, had a very different, different signification uh, at the time they were constructed. And they were not built... You know, as the name would suggest, these were military buildings, a place where arms could be stored and troops could be trained and such. But these armory buildings were not the old presidios or the coastal fortifications constructed earlier in America, you know, as defenses against, you know, foreign invasion, defense of the nation against foreign invasion. Rather, these armory buildings, you might say, faced inwards intended to overwhelm, like the boulevards of Louis Napoleon, uh, overwhelm a different perceived enemy, one that we might call the enemy within. Now, you got to bear with me for a moment. I just want to expand on that, that concept of the enemy within, because there's a very long tradition in U.S. history of identifying various enemies within. Uh, in the early years, you know, uh, native populations or or slave rebellions. Uh, I mean, the list is too long to describe in any detail here. In the 20th century, what maybe uh, the political enemy, the internal enemies, radicals, political subversives, rooted out in the famous Red Scares of the 20th century, you know, rounded up 
uh, sometimes even deported, or maybe maybe in our own time, uh, because the current administration has certainly tapped into that vein of in, of you know the enemy within for political capital. Um, you know, so-called illegal immigrants, mm -hmm. right, who are arrested and detained and, and deported, something like that. So a long history, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and look, I mean, if we think about this first, I mean, the, the basic idea of the enemy was in that the great threat to the country comes not from a foreign foe, but from those living within our midst, you know? And so there's a, there's a kind of, uh, it smacks of a kind of psychological terror, maybe, you know, don't look under the bed kind of thing, you know? And certainly, as I say, Donald Trump has been no stranger to this, um, you know, this wellspring of political fear uh, recently, and I've made note of this in the previous episode, you know, he announced his intention to dominate the public space outside the White House because of the protests that were going on in Lafayette Park uh, after the killing of George Floyd. Uh, but again, who's he talking about? Well, listen, listen to his Secretary of Defense, Mark Asper, who in a, in a call to the nation's governors said, uh, I think the sooner that you mass and dominate the battle space, the quicker this dissipates and we can get right back to normal. And so when they were talking about a battle space or the public space, they weren't, they weren't talking again about throwing up walls to prevent people from other countries. I mean, they do that too. Um, but they're talking about the enemy within. And it was during that conference call that the uh, Secretary of Defense had when he spoke of the battle space, uh, referring to American cities, uh, and ultimately more than 17,000 troops and 24 different National Guard, uh, State Guard units were deployed, you know, following the, the killing of, of George Floyd. And, and so, you know, I would say that however dismaying it may have felt and disturbing, it certainly was for me watching it play out on, on television, you know, the brutal spectacle of militarized cops, you know, pummeling, spraying, shoving, generally trampling Americans with a powerful arsenal of weapons, you know, sort of uh, backed up by, you know, National Guard troops and such, or even in one instance in Washington, you know, military helicopters sort of coming in low, um, and getting, you know, creating havoc with a rotor wash from their blades. Uh, as, as hard as that was for me to watch, certainly, you know, I realized in some ways it's as American as apple pie that is turning those kind of militarized forces against the perceived enemy within on American ground in American spaces. And uh, you know, it goes back at least to the Civil War and the New York City draft riots during the Civil War when you had to have Union Army regiments recalled back to New York City to put down rioters who were upset about the, uh, the sort of racial and class implications of what was then one of the first military drafts in our country's history. And I think it was coming out of that Civil War experience of fighting the enemy within on home ground that really gave lie ultimately to what had been the uh, sort of the standard line, the operating line in the early years before the American Civil War, the early years, say, of the American um, Industrial Revolution, that, you know, America would never have that kind of class warfare. That was something for the old countries of Europe, that instead of class conflict, America had what was sometimes called a harmony of interests, 
because of the possibility of upward mobility. There would be no lasting class resentments, you know, through enough hard work, luck and pluck, you could raise yourself from the ranks of the working man into the ranks of the property. Well, that was the company line, but you know, all of that was essentially blown apart in the, in the decade that followed the Civil War. In the 1870s, when we get some of the first great economic depressions of the now uh, in, you know, thoroughly industrialized uh, era, uh, the, the era of railroads and the first steel factories, what we call heavy industry, right? Um, and the rhetoric changes, you know, Josh, from uh, the harmony of interest kind of speech to now what is often referred to in trepidation by propertied interests as the army of the unemployed, <laughs> right? That there was this sort of army of poor and wanton, you know, people who were really not part of the American formula, but who represented a permanent class of discontented workers and radicals and that sort of thing, um, suggesting a new version of the enemy within the army of the unemployed. And you had a lot of unemployment, you know, beginning in 1873 with the panic of that year, the economic panic. Uh, business failures and closings, production declines, and a million or more workers losing their jobs. So it was easy now to capture them as the army of the unemployed. And, and clearly, you know, this was a messaging that suggested the, that that division, a line drawn between, as, as Franz Fanon says, uh, separated those from, from uh, those who were apparently on the wrong side of that line who are a danger to civil order and, and that sort of from those now presumably what law abiding Americans, people of propertied interests who were not interested in shutting down factories or stopping the trains, which, by the way, is exactly what happened in 1877, the country's first national labor strike, uh, the strike of 1877 that began in the railroad industry in Baltimore. Uh, and spread quickly across the, the rail lines of the Midwest and even out west, where you saw workers who were upset by chronically low wages, unsafe working condition, hours of work, standard what we may call bread and butter working men's issues, um, resulted in only harsh measures of resistance by you know the factory owners and the railroad bosses and their political cronies. And so you get a national strike. You know, this is just a little over a decade after the Civil War had ended. Uh, a new kind of battle front was emerging as groups like the Knights of Labor and the Workingmen's Party sought to take advantage of the great and seething discontent of those in the working classes, who, by the way, I think a lot of this, this is to be explained is, is from their recognition of the fact the workers themselves, you know, the railroad yard workers and, and the, uh, the heavy industry workers and others who realize that given the wage system and the so-called industrial discipline that had been imposed on them, including, you know, measures taken to keep them from organizing, that, that somehow that idea of an American dream and a harmony of interests was just uh, no longer a possibility and that there was no avenue of upward mobility except through direct confrontation of those who controlled all the resources. So yeah, you get a big strike that year in 1877 and workers showed that they could bring the trains uh, to a halt. Um, one of those outlets uh, for, for frustration, the Working Men's Party 
put forward resolutions. And one of the things they said caught my eye. They said, uh, the United States government has allied itself on the side of capital and against labor. And so this was a clear statement, I think, of, of class division. You know, never mind harmony of interest. There are real social economic classes. They are not equal, and there is not perfect mobility between them. And it was, I think, because of that sense of loss and disillusionment and, and frustration, not to mention desperation, that workers um, at one point in, in 1877 took over the town of East St. Louis, Illinois. It was a railroad town across the river from St. Louis, Missouri. They took over the rail yards first, but effectively took control of the town, so much so that, that some of the newspapers at the time compared it to uh, the Paris Commune from a few years earlier when a, uh, a self-governing collected, uh, as you described, uh, attempted to govern Paris for several weeks. Um, well, the, the, the response here uh, on the part of capital and, and as I say, their, their government uh, or political uh, cronies was swift and sure. Um, Carl Schurz, the Secretary of the Interior at the time, responded to the takeover in East St. Louis by um, calling in several regiments of federal troops. Uh, so the soldiers went marching into St. Louis uh, to put this thing down. As Schurz said, a rallying point to restore order. And you see a lot of that. The St. Louis Republic uh, newspaper depicted the strikers as greedy, violent, and ruthless. And in an 1877 issue of Harper's Weekly, a popular magazine, uh, Harper's uh, praised the troops as, quote, the flower of American citizen soldiery, who have by their attitude and conduct earned the grateful respect of all good citizens everywhere in the country. So. Okay, so the battle lines were drawn. Domestic unrest was a major concern now from that point forward, from the 1870s right on through the end of the century, with often, you know, violent confrontations between labor and capital in an increasingly stratified nation. Riots and strikes became bloodier as the chasms, you might say, between rich and poor, uh, native and immigrant often, black and white, capital and labor, all widened during uh, this, this period, and these conflicts grew in, in especially intense in these, uh, these industrial cities, you know, where you had the, the factories and the tenement districts and such. Uh, and it's in that area that I want to sort of now focus this bit about armories, because this was the space. This was the defined space for power to now assert itself, particularly in a place like, you know, New York with a large New York City, a large urban population. Uh, the fledgling uh, municipal police force at the time was really unable to harness the energies. And so, you know, the National Guard uh, is sort of reoriented now toward a kind of um, policing function of its own right uh, to defend the status quo, suppress strikes, uh, demonstrations, you know, end riots, etc. And a concomitant of that, that is part and parcel of that redirecting of the National Guard to this kind of urban patrol, was the building of armories in which their arms and munitions could be housed and which they could be drilled and trained for special duty now in the urban war zone, if you will. And so the spate of armories uh, that, as I say, become almost universal in the country beginning in the late 1870s, now, specially designed uh, buildings, constructed armories, 
uh, came to mark this urban landscape in very distinctive ways. Um, the architectural style, and they put these things out to bid, cities did. Sometimes they were privately funded, sometimes with public funds. Uh, but they put them out to bid. And what came back were these designs that have been called castellated Gothic. Castellated Gothic. I think your house is designed that way, isn't it, Josh? Yeah, well, we, we're afraid of uh, urban unrest, so we got to have... <laughs> We need defense. You have a bases, turret yeah. or two. <laughs> These are, I mean, they call them castles for a reason, right? They're they're completed with turrets and towers and battlements, so-called porticulous gates. These are the heavy iron gates that can lift up, and and uh, you know, it was fear of domestic unrest that triggered this this construction uh, during this period uh, when you know tensions and urban environs between capital and labor. Uh, you know, seem to constantly rear its head, um, and and thus making the National Guard's mission now the maintenance of public order, which was just another way of saying of keeping urban people in check. Uh, that meant troops, right? Well trained, well armed, and ready at a moment's notice. Uh, these first armies really were urban fortresses, heavy, thick set, seemingly impregnable. They were meant to make a, a statement. Uh, to whom? Well, to anybody living in the city, which increasingly, you know, were working people, immigrant people, etc. Not unlike later on, let's say, Confederate statues would, you know, a kind of political statement uh, of their own. They were seemingly uh, impregnable, these places. Uh, the civic purpose, again, uh, in the name of urban order, reminding passersby who held the cards. You know, uh, who held the power? I'll put some images up on our website and, and our view, our listeners can get a sense of what they actually look like. But, you know, these are tens of thousands of square feet in size, these buildings, uh, because they had to be big enough, not only for the armory itself, the holding of arms, but also the drilling of National Guard troops. And so they were heavily buttressed with exposed steel trusses. Uh, they look kind of like the same design, actually, of, of train sheds and exhibition halls, but with a kind of military, you know, coloring over um, massive, unobstructed spaces that were designed to, you know, to make a statement, you might say, against the presumed enemy within. Um, now, in New York State, 120 armories were built from the late 18th century into the 20th century, but most of the 120 were actually built in this last quarter or so of the 20th century in this period that I'm discussing. Manhattan's 7th Regiment Guard Unit had its own armory, and other New York armories uh, soon followed along. As one writer puts it, a great array of medieval fortresses began rising in the city, such that this idea of castellated Gothic, meaning a castle-like structure or military Gothic, becomes the universal style now uh, throughout New York City and many other cities uh, as well. Um, they served a, a couple of different administrative functions, a head, so-called headhouse for the administrative uh, commanders of the guard units, a drill shed, as I say, a place for the soldiers themselves, uh, not to mention uh, military amenities like mess halls and pistol ranges. In 1890, the, the, the wealthy and socially prestigious 1st Regiment in New York City built their own privately financed castle-style armory on South Michigan uh, Avenue. I think I said New York. I meant to say Chicago. Uh, that armory was built on the ruins of a former 
lesser armory and now featured as one design manual said crenellated towers an impressive entrance and an immense tower based on the city hall of siena italy it's insane <laughs> medieval uh, cosplay is what it is <laughs> yeah couldn't do better than that man um In 1907 in Chicago, the state built a modified castle-style armory on East Chicago Avenue to host uh, yet another Chicago regiment. And so they sort of got into a contest of each one sort of um, topping the previous one. Even out here in the West, you know, in Oregon, 1891, Oregon National Guard built a 20,000-foot square uh, armory. 1895, Portland, Oregon uh, was matched by Portland, Maine. Portland, Maine, uh, with a Roman, as what was described as a Romanesque behemoth, uh, which had an ornate exterior enlivened by red brick turrets and a broad arched doorway, all accentuated, said the architect, with glowing blocks of deer isle pink granite. Uh, (laughs) How's that? Uh, The feds built the National Guard Bureau in 1908, just outside of Washington, to kind of... um, gave a kind of federal umbrella to all these uh, local efforts, uh, superintended by the Secretary of War. Uh, and I can't help but mention that that uh, office was built on the Jefferson Davis Highway in Arlington, Virginia. Over and over, the 7th Regiment Armory in New York, uh, as one historian described, once included men from New York's wealthiest and most prominent families. Which sort of made sense because the people who want to build these armories were the property classes. You know, it was their interests that these armories were bound to protect. Uh, and even Providence, Rhode Island in 1907 outdid everybody else with a 165,000 square foot building. So, I don't know, what would you describe? A kind of a bonanza of urban construction predicated on the armory the castellated uh, Gothic armory style to create a military, living military presence in the heart of our great cities and even sort of middling cities uh, to guard against the enemy within. What do you think? Yeah, it's a it's an incredible example. I really didn't know that much about it, but it it's a, it's a great example of how how the same structures can mean to, something totally different depending on who you are. You know, if you're part of that the moneyed class in New York who sees these armories as a chance to engage in civic pride and as you as you noted as well mm-hmm. you know defend your own capital basically right defend your own economic mm-hmm. and, and political and social interests then the armories you know represent that that sense of civic pride this this thing that our city built but if you're one of those internal enemies as you as you described then this is this giant monument to the power of the state over your body right absolutely you know the thing that that i was thinking about as you were talking is even that idea of, of the internal enemy is so self-contradictory, right? Because how can the people be the enemy of the people? Um, <laughs> but what, what you know, it, it kind of reminded me of is this entire idea of, of, of sort of provisional belonging, that there's some who inherently belong to the nation and some who are constantly having to earn their place in the nation. And if that's, you know, if you're working class, if you're black, if you're Latino, if you're uh, whoever, whatever group it is, who's not considered part of that, that central power structure, then you are or are not part of the nation, always depending on how the power structure decides to see you at that moment. Um, it actually reminds me of, uh, of in, in China, in the PRC, you know, there's this idea that the, the party, the Communist Party, represents the people. Therefore, if you 
if you stake out a position against the party, then you're by definition anti-people, right? You're against mm -hmm. the people as well. Mm -hmm. So there's just no winning, right? Because the, the state itself determines who's the people and who's not, and therefore they can determine who is the enemy, the enemy of the people as well. And to see that playing out in these public spaces is, is um, pretty extraordinary. Yeah, that's such a good point. You know, and I can't help but throw in here, you know, it was never supposed to be that way, right? At least in, in, the, in, in the theoretical pronounce, you know, pronouncements of, of the Constitution. The Constitution begins, we the people, mm. you know, the concept of popular sovereignty, that the, it's the people who constitute the government, not the right. government who designates, you know, the people, right? But, but that's what's happening. And if we draw it up to the current time, you know, a strange thing happens. Well, it's all, I guess it's only strange if you don't follow the pedigree of it, you know, or are used to sort of thinking in these, you know, um, kind of uh, surface terms, you know, of, of things like the, <laughs> the constitutional preamble. Um, yeah, because what happens is white people start leaving cities, Josh, you know, in the 20th century. I mean, it really begins in the, the late 1800s, the streetcar suburbs, and later on the automobile suburbs. You know, which allow for white people to move out of the city core into what are now becoming you know, suburban communities uh, and be able to commute every day back into the urban core to make a living, but not stay any longer really than necessary before leaving. And so what that does is it kind of re results in a bifurcating, you know, Franz Fanon talking about dividing into two, right, a kind of bifurcated mm -hmm. uh, populace of mostly immigrant, non-white, and by the time of the world wars of the 20th century, an increasingly black demographic in the northern industrial cities, as opposed to the almost um, completely white uh, suburbs, and and it's and you and you put your finger on it earlier. What this does, it creates a new kind of stigma associated with cities. You know, whereas ghettos in the past had merely been sort of literally ethnic neighborhoods, now mm -hmm. ghettos were a pejorative. Right. They were seen as as unseemly or illegitimate, dangerous places occupied by non-white people, whether immigrants or black and brown peoples who we might uh, define in this context as somehow as the other. They, they weren't the people in the classic sense. They were somehow the other. And and again, Donald Trump has evoked that racial dog whistle uh, a number of times as recently as well this year, but certainly in 2017 when he said of Chicago, now Chicago is out of control. I don't know what they're doing in Chicago. This many shootings and this many killings and all the different things that are going on. And as you pointed out, he encapsulated this in a phrase. And the phrase, the dog whistle phrase was inner city, mm -hmm. inner city. And just as you suggested, and just as Franz Fanon has suggested, everybody knew what this meant. Right, a disreputable place, as Fanon says, inhabited by disreputable people. So I want to finish this bit today, again, transitioning to the history of now. And it was another Times, New York Times piece that I read uh, on my um, endless New York Times account. <laughs> Just <My> can't <laughs> stop. <laughs> Jab me, huh? <laughs> Someday I'll, I'll have the salary to, to afford that account. But listen, your next promotion, you'll be able to afford it. I guarantee it. Okay? I think I think yeah. five more years till my next till my next go. one. So step, step and column raise. Uh, yeah. A piece written by a C.J. Chivers, who is a now decorated journalist, Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, who back in in 1992 was a Marine 
uh, Corps company commander out of Camp Pendleton in um, Southern California who was ordered to take his Marine Corps company uh, up the highway. I, and, and there are pictures, you can look them up on Google, coming up the 405 basically in a, in a military convoy of Humvees and other troop carriers at the time of the so-called Rodney King riots. And uh, the governor of California had requested federal help. George Bush, the first George Bush, um, had, uh, you know, assented to that and, and, and allowed the Marine Corps to come up from Camp Pendleton to patrol mostly south central, you know, where a lot of the, the damage from fires and such and some of the, you know, the, the violence of the, of the uh, post-Rodney King verdicts had played out. And C.J. Shivers, you know, as a Marine commander at that point, said it was incredibly awkward. And, and you know, his Marines weren't trained for that. Uh, many of them were veterans of the first Gulf War. Uh, his gunnery sergeant came to him and said, what are we supposed to do? You know, and, and the idea was that they were adjunct to the L.A. Police Department, basically, you know, keeping uh, a watchful eye on things. And uh, he had all the, like, the machine gun turrets uh, emptied of their armaments, so at least they didn't come rolling into L.A. with their 50 cal machine guns, you know, pointed outward. But, but you know, it was just a strange time. And he said, uh, Shiver said in writing this article in reference to our current time, you know, uh, long since having uh, left the military as, as a journalist, he said, for all Trump's tilts toward authoritarianism and his intolerance of dissent, the United States has not yet descended to anything like this. And, and what he meant was, as a reporter covering a conflict in Azerbaijan in the post-Soviet era, when a strong man, an autocratic, took a possession of that country and its oil, its oil reserves, and in, in response to the protests of the Azerbaijanis, had ordered in the military. And C.J. Chivers was there covering this as a correspondent, and he said they wouldn't touch the press at that time when they had their press credentials. But everyone else, their bodies became fair game to a militarized strike force that came in and just beat and bloodied the Azerbaijanis. And he said the look on their faces, both the soldiers and the civilians, reminded him of some of the looks he saw more recently covering the protests in the post-George Floyd moment. Um, he said the tools at hand for He's talking about America now. The tools at hand for confronting public outrage and civil disobedience have changed with political consequences of their own. Police departments, and he means since the Rodney King era, police departments have undergone decades of arming up and mission creep, putting officers in intimidating kit and giving governing officials in moments of tension command of organizations that in some cases resemble the crackdown squads of countries like Azerbaijan. And so he notes that ever since the 90s, you know, American police officers and American citizens, in his words, were in a veritable arms race. And as a military guy and as a, a reporter, he says, that, you know, there's an unwritten rule. It says once you give somebody new weaponry, and he says what the police have now are far more sophisticated than the weapons his Marines had. You know, some of them are the same. Some of them are, you know, carbine M4 rifles, you know, capable of, of high magazine load and, and, and rapid fire. That, that a new generation of, of weaponry that wasn't even available at, at the time uh, he was in the Marines are now in the possession of police departments. And he says, once police departments around the country had armor and armories filled with the latest generation of novel crowd control weapons and were faced with widespread disorder, 
heavily equipped officers were going to put their new weapons to the kinds of uses seen here recently in late May and early June. Video footage and photographs from many cities in the United States showed police officers in helmets and armor using dangerous weapons repeatedly against unarmed demonstrators, including at short range against people with their arms raised overhead and hands empty of objects that could be mistaken for weapons. People in postures indicating submission, compliance, or an absence of any physical threat at the moment they were shot, blasted, or sprayed. These weapons were, in addition to the authorities, hard plastic shields at times wielded offensively and the almost ubiquitous batons, closed quote. So, yeah, Josh, I don't know. It seems in the history of now that Americans have a choice to make, and it's the thing that, you know, our guest was talking about earlier and that we've been looking at now for the last several episodes. That is a choice to make about the quality of our commitments to racial justice going forward. But, you know, as our episode's kind of suggesting today, that choice is tied to the way we define power and what we decide are the proper boundaries, physical boundaries, and limits of that power in public spaces where people live and work and go to school. And uh, I don't know, I guess whether we possess the moral courage to abolish once and for all the damaging fears of an enemy within and embrace the peoples who have seen their rights traded away far too often on that altar of power. Well, I can't think of a better way to end this. Thanks, guys, for listening. This has been History Against the Grain, and we will talk to you again next week. Nobody is innocent. It's a sin when you play into ignorance. Another one goes in your eyes again. So you don't have to see what's happening. Then now, what's going on in these streets? You can't live by what you see on TV. Stop sucking a cycle so we